So if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, or you can navigate there on your device, whichever you prefer. You're going to want to be looking at the Scripture as we walk through it together today, and as we prepare ourselves to look at God's Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your Word and to allow you to teach us. I pray now that any humanness left in this message you would take away and you would replace it with the indwelling of your spirit, that he would come and dwell us and teach us what you would have us to learn from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So for the past few months, we've been walking together or journeying together through the book of Romans to help help us understand a journey that God wants each of us to take individually and collectively from here to there. And what we've seen so far is that here is bad, and there is supposed to be good. But the road from here to there sometimes gets kind of bumpy. It's filled with potholes. Sometimes it's windswept and hard. And sometimes there just seems so far away. And we wonder, can we really ever get there? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans 5, titled it simply, Assurance. And he's right. We can have assurance that we can get there. But as we arrive today at the second half of chapter 5, we will see that if we want assurance, first, there's a reality we have to face. And second, there's a choice we have to make. Because what we find in this passage is a tale of two men, Adam and Christ. And it's a tale that leaves us each with a question we have to answer. It's a question about our identity. Specifically, which of these two men do we identify with, Adam or Christ? But first, in order to properly understand this passage and apply it to our lives, we sort of have to take a step back. And we have to see its place in the overall letter. The second half of Romans 5 serves as sort of a hinge between the two halves of the book. Using this new illustration of Adam and Christ, Paul sums up everything that's come before it, and he sets the stage for everything that he will cover in the rest of the letter. Not only is this passage the hinge in the book of Romans, but as one commentator has suggested, in these ten verses, Paul provides a concise picture of the teaching of the entire Bible. No small feat in ten verses. And Paul has packed this passage with layer upon layer of nuanced theology. So layered and so nuanced that some pastors have spent months preaching on it, while most avoid it altogether. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his introduction to the passage. This section from verse 12 to 21 is the very heart and center of the epistle to the Romans. And then he continued on for 202 pages to attempt to fully explain it. Donald Barnhouse, on the other hand, had this to say about Romans 5, 12 to 21. It is one of the most crucial passages in the Word of God, 
and the central theme of the epistle to the Romans. And Barnhouse, he only took 173 pages to explain it. But do not fret and do not fear, because I know you are a very smart congregation, which is a very good thing, because we have exactly 30 minutes to cover the entire thing. And now you know why Pastor Barry's away this week. <laughs> but seriously, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, what we will discover together today is that while this passage can be very layered and nuanced, it can also be wonderfully simplistic. John MacArthur introduces the passage this way. Many people consider Romans 5, 12 to 21 to be the most difficult passage in the epistle. And as far as human comprehension is concerned, the truths of this passage are beyond reach. But, on the other hand, the truths themselves are wonderfully simple when accepted in humble faith as God's word. Just as it is possible to accept and live in the accordance with the laws of gravity without fully understanding it, so it is possible for believers to accept and live according to God's truth without fully understanding it. And so we arrive in our journey through Romans today at chapter 5, verse 12, which begins with another therefore, just like our passage last week did. Paul has this tendency towards nested thoughts and run-on sentences in his writing, which at times can make following his train of thought a little tricky. If you ever had a conversation with a really good friend, and the conversation just rolls on, and then at some point you look at each other and you say, how did we get here? And you begin to retrace the steps of your conversation, finishing stories that had been left untold. Well, then you find yourself in very good company with Paul. Because from the beginning of the book to where we find ourselves in chapter 5, Paul presents a series of six nested thoughts, which we've outlined for you in your notes. And the key thing of that that we need to see today is that the verse that we're beginning in, in chapter 5, verse 12, is really the completion of the thought that he began way back in chapter 1, verse 16. And so if we were to read that as a complete thought, it would read like this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And we see that Paul doesn't just bring us back to the beginning of Romans to complete his thought. With his comparison between Adam and Christ, he takes us back even further. In fact, he takes us all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the beginning of the biblical narrative in the Garden of Eden. So he can explain to us not only that we are all sinners, but why we are all sinners. Why does he do this? Because as Lloyd-Jones says, to understand our problem and our need we must first understand what happened to Adam. So let's take a look at Adam. At its core, what was Adam's sin? 
His sin was that he chose to follow himself instead of following his maker. He chose to put me at the center of his life instead of putting God at the center of his life. And with that choice, Adam chose a path to follow, a path for himself and a path for each of us. But how did that happen, you ask? How did Adam's choice make us all sinners? Well, that's a great question. I told you guys you were a smart congregation. Adam's choice made us all sinners because in the beginning, in the garden, we were in union with Adam. In the garden, Adam represented all human beings as what's called the federal head and the natural head of the human race. Two terms we're not that used to, so let's unpack them briefly. Federal headship refers to the representation of a group united under a federation or a covenant. A current example would be the President of the United States. In his role as Commander-in-Chief, he is the federal head of our military forces. He represents them, he can speak for them, and he can commit them to action regardless of any individual soldier's opinion. And as our federal head, Adam was our representative in the garden. He represented all humans. And so his action was seen as an action of all humans by God. But not only was he our federal head, he was our natural head. And we all understand with modern medicine that there are things we can do that will affect our offspring. Things we do before they're born, things we can do to our bodies before they're even conceived that can affect them after they're born. Well, Adam is the natural head of the human race. When he was in the garden, contained all of humanity seminally and physically inside of himself. And so his action not only affected him, it affected the entire human race. And can't you just hear Adam? But I didn't mean for that to happen. But all too often, we make decisions for the pleasure of the moment, don't we? Decisions for the pleasure of the moment without regard for the implications of the future. How many unplanned pregnancies? How many affairs? How many broken families are the result of giving in to the pleasure of the moment without regard for the implications in the future? How many rehab centers, how many diet fads do we need because we can't stop ourselves from giving in to the pleasure of the moment? Genesis 3.1, the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? Those are the first four words of every slippery slope you will ever find yourself on. Did God really say? Yes, God did say. Recently, I had the opportunity to spend a few days in municipal court. Not for myself, I was with a friend helping them. But as I sat watching case after case go before the judge, 
I saw a common theme. I witnessed people who had made decisions for either the pleasure or the convenience of a moment with no regard for the implications of the future. And so they found themselves standing in a courtroom before a judge who would decide their future. Have you ever thrown a rock into a smooth lake? If you have, you know it doesn't take a very big rock to create ripples. And that's what we have to recognize about our sin. Our actions, as small as they may seem to us at the time, can create some pretty big ripples. What was the consequence of Adam's sin? That we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All because Adam made a decision for the pleasure of the moment without enough regard for the implications on the future. So if you want to save yourself from a lot of heartache, spend some time visualizing the devastation before you act. If you're in a hurry, you're tempted to speed, visualize the ticket. It's tax season. You need a few extra dollars? Tempted to cheat on your taxes? Visualize the audit. Out at dinner, thinking about just one more drink? Visualize the DWI. Indulging yourself in some workplace flirting? Visualize the divorce. Because it's pretty easy to create ripples. But once that rock is thrown, those ripples are not so easy to erase. Which is why we can't afford to be sidetracked for too long on Adam and our sinfulness. Because the main point of this passage is really not Adam at all. As Lloyd-Jones says, the more we see and understand the nature of sin and what it has done to the human race and to every individual man without exception, the more we shall marvel at the wonder of God's exceeding and superabounding grace. And so we must turn our attention to Christ. Paul continues the thought from verse 12 in verse 15. He says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So which is easier? To forgive somebody one time or to forgive them lots of times? Or is it easier to forgive one person or to have to forgive a whole lot of people? At some time or another, I'm sure we have all asked the question, how many times do I have to forgive them? And what that question reveals about us is that at its best, our forgiveness is limited. And because there are limits to our forgiveness, we project those limits onto God and we think there must be limits on his forgiveness. But no, 
No, no, no. There are no limits on God's forgiveness. From the one trespass, all sinned, but after all sinned, one righteous act resulted in justification for all people. And we can't miss the fact that the righteous act that Christ took on the cross on our behalf was only possible because of a lifetime of actions he had already taken. Christ did not just die for us. First, he lived for us. His death was the culminating act of his life. If his life wasn't important, he could have died as a perfect baby instead of living to become a perfect man. Because we are sinners by both nature and choice, Christ needed to be perfect by both nature and choice. He lived a perfect life so he could succeed where Adam had failed and where each one of us has failed. Because Adam put himself in the middle of his life But Christ always kept God in the middle of his. He lived a perfect life so he could stand in our place. He lived a perfect life so he could set an example for our sanctification, which is the thought that will propel us forward into chapter 6 next week. You see, it doesn't matter what you have done. God's grace is enough. And God's grace is for all people. It really is almost too big of an idea to completely wrap our heads around. The greater the sin, the greater number of sins, the greater the grace of God. Forget ripples, let's talk waves. Have you ever been at the beach in the middle of a hurricane? It's probably a pretty good picture of the destructiveness of our sin. But, have you ever been at the beach the day after a hurricane? The ocean is perfectly still. And this is what Christ wants to do to our lives. He wants to calm the waves of sin that are washing over us. See, it really is a tale of two men. Both Adam and Christ pass on to others what belonged to them. Adam shares death through sin, and Christ shares life through righteousness. Adam shared through his genes, Christ shared through his example and his substitution. Adam was disobedient, which led to condemnation and death, but Christ was obedient, which leads to righteousness and life. Adam was motivated by self, but Christ was motivated by others. And we have to see that our relationship to one is parallel to our relationship with the other. Warren Wearsby says the key thought here is that when God looks upon the human race, he sees but two men. He sees Adam and he sees Christ. Every human being is either in Adam and lost or in Christ and saved. There simply is no middle ground. And so the question we're left to ask of ourselves is who? 
who do we identify with? Do we identify with Adam? Or do we identify with Christ? Sin is man putting himself in the place of God. Grace is God putting himself in the place of man. So we have to ask ourselves, where is God in our story? If our identity is still in Adam, if the center of your life is still you, then sin continues to govern. And the result of that sin will be judgment and death. But if we have identified with Christ, if we have put God back at the center of our lives, then righteousness now governs. To put it another way, it's a question of nature versus nurture. As many of you know, my wife and I have two sons. Connor was our natural son, and Micah is our adopted son. Connor shares our nature. Micah does not. We know Micah's birth mom in so many ways. We see her nature in him, how he looks, some of his temperament qualities. But they both share our nurture. And sometimes I've got to do a double take. Because while they've never met each other and they don't share a single gene, sometimes I look at Micah, he does something or says something, and I think, wow, you are just like your brother. How is that possible? Because they both have an amazing mother who nurtures them selflessly. And so we see that nurture can trump nature. So who are we being nurtured by? Are we being nurtured by Adam? Is sin still reigning with me in the center of my life? Or are we being nurtured by Christ? And does righteousness reign with God at the center of our life? So we have to look at verse 20. The law. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Why did God create the law? To prove to us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what our nature is really like. And to show us, beyond a shadow of a doubt, why we so desperately need his nurture. See, verse 13 and 14 told us that sin was in the world before the law, which is important, because what that says to us is following the law will never lead to forgiveness. And this is the flaw of all legalistic religious systems. We can never attain righteousness by following the law. The law simply acts as a magnifying glass for our natural condition. And just like the magnifying glass does not change what is under the lens, the law does not change our nature. It just magnifies it so we can see it more clearly, so we can fully understand our desperate need and appreciate God's gift even more. God wants to prove only two things to us through the law, how bad we are and how good he is. Why does he need to prove that to us? Because a vague understanding that something is wrong 
will never drive us to the change we need. So the law was brought in so that sin might increase to the point that it's impossible to ignore our problem. And I'd suggest we all have to be pretty nearsighted to look around and miss the fact that not only are we broken, but we live in the middle of a sea of brokenness. So let's try and bring it all together. Here's Romans chapter one, chapters 1 through 5 in a single sentence. We all have a problem called sin. Jesus is the only solution to our problem. And here is the part that I beg you, I beg you not to miss. You have to choose Jesus. Right? Verse 17 says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God's grace and the gift of righteousness are available to all people. But unfortunately, they are not being received by all people. And if it's not received, you simply don't have it. For the past few Mother's Days, we've prepared gifts for all the women in the church. These nice little gift boxes of chocolate. And it always amazes me at the end of the day that there's gift boxes left. There are people who didn't take the gift. It was free. It was offered. It was available. There was more than enough for everyone. And it was good chocolate. But some people chose not to take it. And you know what? If they didn't take it, guess what? They had no chocolate. You have to receive the gift that God is offering you. Because we are all related by nature to Adam. But if we have received the gift of God through faith, we are now related by grace to Jesus Christ. If we are only related to Adam, we will face condemnation. But if we are also related to Christ, then we are justified. We will be made righteous. And Lloyd-Jones was right. We can have assurance. If you're here today and you have not received the gift that God is offering, if you is still in the center of your life, please stop. Look at the ripples. Look at the waves. Look through the magnifying glass and see your brokenness. Look around and see the result of your sin and receive the gift that God is offering you through Christ. Receive forgiveness, and then you will find peace, purpose, and hope when God takes his rightful place in the center of your life. If you have received that gift, if you sit here today assured then during this Lenten season, slow down. Stop. Pray about who God wants you to share that gift with. 
and then obey whatever he tells you to do. Because in the end, God only sees two people. He sees Adam, and he sees Christ. And whoever it is that God has put on your heart to share that gift with, you really want God to see Christ when he looks at them. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your grace is bigger than all our sins. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his perfect life. We thank you for his death. We thank you that through him we have been adopted. Through him we do have relationship with you. And Father, I pray for everyone in each of our lives who does not have that relationship, everyone in each of our lives who still lives with Adam as their nurturer. I pray that you would use us, that you would use us to shine the light of Christ, to give the gift of Christ to them, that they may know you and find peace in you. In Jesus' name, amen.